Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. A few years ago, I uh, remember they opened the Chick-fil-A here in Troy. And someone told me that if you waited outside and you were the first like hundred customers at the new Chick-fil-A, that they would give you free Chick-fil-A for a year. That sounded absolutely glorious to me. I mean, imagine having the privilege of daily, weekly, whatever it was, Chick-fil-A, right? Christian chicken. I mean, there has to be some kind of righteousness that's passed through this Christian chicken, right? And so, uh, you know, some friends of ours actually went out and their son who was in high school Apparently had enough free time on his hands that he could go and wait. And imagine, though, you bask in the glory every week. If you had that privilege, right, you would take full advantage of it, wouldn't you? You would go every week. You would get your Christian chicken. You would do that thing. Or take, for instance, you have a friend who has some knowledge or expertise that you value, say they're uh, foremost in their field and you want to talk to them. And so you just are wearing them out, asking questions because you have the privilege of access. See, this morning, what we want to highlight in our passage is that we have privilege in access. We have privilege in prayer. And as Jesus has been walking through this kind of introduction to the Christian faith in John 13 through 16, and kind of even ongoing into Jesus' prayer in 17, He's kind of reoriented us to this new life that will happen after his resurrection. As he's kind of introduced the disciples to what it is uh, to walk in the Spirit, he's kind of reoriented them to these new priorities of kingdom living. This morning, as we're in John 16, verses 16 through 24, this is what we're going to see. That Jesus was going to the Father so that his disciples could go to the Father. That Jesus was kind of paving the way, as it were, so that he would go back to the Father so that we as disciples might also have confidence before the Father. That we might also have this sense of privilege of wearing out this uh, throne room of God, of kind of constantly coming before him in prayer. So we're going to see this in three different ways. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus is going to disappear and reappear. In verses 19 through 22, the disciples will experience the sorrow of loss and the joy of gain. And then finally, in verses 23 through 24, Jesus anticipates the disciples' connection to the Father. I want to kind of just dive right in this morning, and we're going to look at first at Jesus' disappearance and reappearance in verses 16 through 18. So I'm going to invite you to look at the Scriptures with me again. John 16, verse 16, and Jesus says this. He says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that you say to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. See, the first thing that we see is that Jesus will be gone and then come back. 
right? This is this word, this phrasing that you see in these verses, this little while that he keeps talking about, this short period of time. In a little while, Jesus would be taken from them for three days. He would be crucified and buried. And at the end of that three days, that he would rise again in power and authority, and that he would come and show himself to the disciples, as we'll even see in John chapter 20 and 21. But what happens is that this impossible providence that that Jesus is describing leaves his disciples really confused. And what we see in verses 17 and 18 is just this statement of confusion. See, the disciples kind of had anticipated that Jesus was going to build this kingdom thing that we've been kind of hearing about, right? So Jesus was this Messiah that was come, that was promised in the Old Testament, and now he was here, and he was going to build his kingdom. In fact, we see this reflection from uh, the disciples in places like Matthew 16, they describe that Jesus is the Christ, the sent one, the son of God. And they had this anticipation from uh, prophets like Isaiah and others that described that this son of God, this Messiah would build his kingdom. And so when Jesus talks about going away, it's confusing. Imagine if we went into your house and we took away your couch or your dining room table it would be disorienting to you, right? It would be confusing. You would sit down for dinner and you would have no place to sit down, right? It would just kind of ruin your patterns. See, these disciples have spent three years adjusting to a reality where Jesus is capable of doing these amazing things, that he is truly the son of God, the Messiah, the sent one. And now it's like all of the rules have just changed in a short conversation. Jesus is saying, I'm going away, and you're going to have sorrow. So this discussion about Jesus going away has been strange and confusing. We see this here in their questions in verse 17 and 18. It's funny, this passage in verse 18, it mentions uh, that they wanted to ask him. In fact, this passage says a lot about asking. But notice here that Jesus has to draw their questions out of them, that they're kind of whispering to one another in the midst of their confusion, like, what is he talking about? What is he saying? And if anything, this highlights kind of the spiritual confusion of these disciples. These disciples, they needed clarity, but they're afraid to ask Jesus. And so Jesus anticipates their questions in verses 19 through 22. That's where we see this, that the disciples are going to experience sorrow and then joy. They'll experience sorrow and absence and joy in resurrection. Look at verses 19 through 22 with me. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Uh Uh-oh, right. That was perfectly timed. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, 
but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. See, Jesus describes these two reactions in verses 19 and 20. The, the second reaction we'll deal with first. He says that uh, the world will rejoice at Jesus's absence. Remember, Jesus has just described in, in John 15 how the world hates him. Right? Do you remember that discussion that we were having, that the world hates him because he represented the Father? And we looked back at John chapter 5, where Jesus described his relationship to the Father, and the world was like murderous to him. They were planning to kill him. See, Jesus is describing this rejoicing at Jesus' death. When Jesus is finally gone, these religious authorities will gloat. I believe it's because I see the first fruits of that in John 18 and 19 as these religious authorities just kind of gloat over this seemingly beaten and lost Jesus. But also the disciples have a reaction, not just that the world will respond and joy, but the disciples will feel sorrow. Verse 20 says that they will weep and lament. And verse 22 says that they will have sorrow. It's understandable that this loss will lead to kind of a heartache. And Jesus has spoken about this a lot, actually, in, in these few chapters. In, in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. In verse 27 of John 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In, in chapter 16, verse 6, we saw this a few weeks ago, he says, Sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus is in tune with the spiritual state of his disciples at this news that he's telling them. He's saying, I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father, and you are sorrowful in this. But Jesus wants to address this spiritual state of his disciples. And so in verses 20 through 22, Jesus kind of uh, unpacks that the disciples' sorrow will turn into joy. So that's what we see in verses 20 and 22. Sorrow becomes joy when Jesus returns. If you look at verse 20, he says, you will be sorrow or sorrow sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This temporary absence, even for a little while, will lead to a temporary sorrow, but that sorrow will turn into joy. The same absence that caused the sorrow is eventually the absence that causes the joy, the crucifixion, right? So Jesus gives this analogy for sorrow in verse 21 and 22. He tells us it's like childbirth. In fact, this morning, to my knowledge, I think we have a member who is in the throes of childbirth right now. We should probably pray for her. Um, many of us have experienced this personally, and frankly, I saw it. It didn't look like fun, right? But as someone who has never given birth, I can wholeheartedly say it's totally worth it, right? It's worth it for my wife to have suffered so long and so hard. See, in all seriousness, I have yet to come across a mother that says the, the pains of childbirth were not worth it. Now, kids might get a different sense as we constantly remind them how long we were in childbirth. You know, I didn't go through 24 hours of labor for you to do this to me, right? This morning, Jesus uses this analogy. The idea is that this temporary pain will lead to a lasting, endurable joy. That the pain, short-lived as it is, will be worth it because the joy that you'll receive on the other end. 
This is the analogy that Jesus kind of uses. He, he describes it like childbirth, right? So the point is, this temporary season of difficulty will be followed by this rich fulfillment. Yes, this childbirth hurts in the moment, but in the end, it's incredibly beautiful and rich and rewarding. And so verse 22 brings it back and clarifies. Look, look at what he says. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Notice what he's saying here. Seeing Jesus again will overcome the sorrow of losing him. All right? Seeing Jesus with their eyes will kind of make all of the difficulty worth it. To be clear, this is the joy of Jesus' resurrection. And what's going to happen here is that the disciples are going to be in the garden with Jesus, and, and Judas and his entourage will come, and they'll scatter like sheep without a shepherd, right? They'll just scatter in, in fear. And some will follow him even to this parts of this trial, but most of them will kind of scatter and be scattered abroad. And sure enough, Jesus will die, but when he's raised, he will show himself to his disciples in John chapter 20. That's John chapter 20 and 21 is his systematic unveiling of himself to his disciples bit by bit. Let's just take a step back for a second here. Jesus has described that he's going away, and this brings about sorrow in his disciples, but that sorrow will become joy when Jesus reveals himself after his his defeated death. And Jesus' cross turns temporary sorrows into eternal joys. That's what Jesus is describing for these people, right? This isn't unfamiliar to us. We see it all the time in the New Testament. We see it in James chapter 1. James says, consider it all joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. How? Because of the resurrection. 1 Peter chapter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Or 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. See, in all of these passages, we have this issue of trial and this call to rejoice. How do Christians We're going to do it this way, all right? Speaking of trial, how do Christians then see joy in the midst of trial? To see the truth for, that's true for these 11 disciples is also true for you and I. We also should view our trials differently through the lens of Jesus's resurrection, Right? We, we see the hardship that we face, and we can face that trial because we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We should, excuse me, I got lost here. In fact, Jesus wants to discuss one particular game-changing element that will come after his resurrection. 
And this is where he pushes in verses 23 and 24. It's kind of a strange reading as we're reading through this passage, and Jesus is talking about sorrow and joy. And then all of a sudden, verses 23 and 24, he starts talking about prayer. And you're saying, what does this have to do with anything? Well, see, prayer is a reaction in a hope-filled view of life. When we believe in resurrection, we're called and invited into this process of prayer. See, in verses 23 and 24, we see this, that Jesus anticipates the disciples' connection to the Father. Look at verse 23 and 24 with me. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Notice the first thing he says is in that day. Jesus is looking forward to this future element that's going to happen. He's telling them that something is about to take place. Again, after Jesus' resurrection, things are going to change significantly, right? The Holy Spirit will come. Uh, Jesus will once again go back to the Father in his ascension. These disciples will be tasked with this uh, kind of disciple-making purpose in places like Matthew 28, and everything's kind of going to change. The landscape of faith is going to change as God has resurrected Jesus to new life. Now, look at this. As, as we read through this, there's a few observations to be made about what this prayer looks like. The first observation is that the disciples are no longer going to be asking Jesus. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. See, Jesus is not to be physically present with his disciples anymore, is he? Even to this day, we... we haven't seen a physically present Jesus in our midst. But I'm not sure this is entirely about Jesus' physical absence. I think Jesus is making a larger point here. He's saying that they would no longer need to ask him, right? Jesus is kind of pointing to this idea that not only will he not physically be present, but they no longer need to ask him directly. They have access to something different. That actually points us to the second half of verse 23. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So the second observation is this, that the disciples will ask the Father. They'll no longer have to ask Jesus because they will have direct access to the Father. Now, notice the qualifiers that, that Jesus gives. He says, whatever. Whatever. This isn't just a word used by snotty teenagers, right? Jesus is using this word as an all-inclusive, carte blanche entry to the Father to say, whatever you ask in my name. Now, that's the qualification, the second qualification, right? Whatever, but it has to be in the name of Jesus. Jesus says that we can have anything according to his name. That is, we can approach the Father in good standing with the Son, and our request, if our request is in line with the heart of the Son, it is to be answered by the Father. Now, this deserves some reflection. We want to stop and kind of unpack this. Actually, the New Testament gives us a couple different instances in which the Lord would not answer our prayers. Husbands, if you're here, 1 Peter 3 tells us that if we don't live with our wives in an understanding way, that it will hinder our prayers. That's the language of 1 Peter 3, verse 7. James 1 tells us that when we pray without faith, we shouldn't expect to receive from God. 
James chapter 4 says something really similar. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, the truth from these passages is this, that when we pray fleshly, selfish prayers, we should anticipate that, that God would deny our request. Let's just say that you, you and I, we, we get selfish, and we start praying for a million dollars to fall from the sky into my backyard, right? I, I want a million dollars to fall out of an airplane into my yard so that I can spend it on the things I want. I'm just going to tell you right now, you could probably pray that to your dying day, and it will probably never happen, right? It may be better uh, for us to pray in some other way, right? I see our prayers are out of, that are out of line with the will of Jesus, we should not anticipate that those things would, would be affirmed by our loving Heavenly Father. It would be decidedly unloving for me to get this million dollars to land in my backyard. It would hand me over to all of the materialism and selfishness that my heart so desperately wants. Let's throw out another scenario. There's also times when we could pray for something good, but God wants to give us something better. Just follow me on this one. Grandma's sick. And we start praying for for grandma's sickness. It might be better for us if grandma isn't healed. It might be better for us to express faith in Jesus in the midst of loss than to have our prayers affirmed and answered. It's a harder one to swallow, isn't it? But sometimes God bypasses good things that are well-intended to give us better things that form our faith and trust in a different way. There are certain prayers that God will answer affirmatively every time. When we pray for Jesus to be glorified, Jesus is always glorified. When we pray that his word would be effective, we we know from Isaiah 55 that his word does not return to him void. He always answers that prayer affirmatively. When we pray for God to be glorified, when we pray for his word to do his work, it always is answered. When we pray in the will of Jesus, he will always answer those things affirmatively. But when we pray outside the will of Jesus, either through selfishness or just our ignorance of God's design, he wants to give us something better. And that's a good thing. See, regardless, Jesus calls us to pray for everything in line with his name. That guideline, in my name, becomes all important and all qualifying, doesn't it? If you're a a history guy, now I'm going to say this, and Brian Spirito is going to correct me. I just have this feeling. But Henry Ford, when he released the Model T, the, the advertisement said something like, you can have any color you want so long as it's black, right? God does this to us from time to time. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. That is to say, if your delight is in the Lord, God will give you the Lord. Make sense? If you're saying, no, my desire is more Chick-fil-A, he might not give you the desire of your heart. So here in, in verse 23, ask anything in my name. That is the qualification that actually guides the request. The heart of the one praying will shape the nature of the request and thereby determine whether it will be answered or not. 
Which leads to an unexpected statement from Jesus. Look at verse 24. Disciples will have full joy. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus returns again to this theme of joy. He's talking about sorrow turning into joy. And now he's saying that this joy comes through the, the prospect of answered prayer. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, he ties it directly to prayer. In asking and receiving, our joy is said to be full. The word implies like filled to the brim or, or fullness. See, the life of prayer is a life of joy. It signifies the renewed acceptance by the Father such that we have come to him with every request in his son's name, and it's our joy to find our requests answered by a God who desires as we desire, that our wants are in line with his wants. And so when we ask, we receive, and it's joyful and sweet and good. Notice the tie to joy. You know, Jesus has been speaking a lot about joy in this whole thing, right? And in John 15, 11, he's described that we would have fullness of joy as we abide in Christ. And so we get a little microcosm of that here. This life of prayer is this avenue or this discussion of joy. In verse 20, he says, your sorrow will turn into joy, that this joy started out in sorrow. It started out in death and separation, and now it has become something indestructible. In verse 22, no one will take your joy from you. And now, finally, in verse 24, it's full, that your joy may be full. The most beautiful expression of joy is joy that we find in a resurrected Christ. So that if I have joy in Christ, that my joy is, is as indestructible as the life of Jesus. That Jesus was raised to new life. That's what he's saying, that he would see them and it would bring them joy. That that joy would be full and it would never be taken from them. Because Jesus would never be dead again. See, Jesus offers full, lasting sorrow-transforming joy. But how? How are we to experience this joy? You know, it stands out to me this morning that Jesus talks about going to the Father, and he talks about us approaching the Father. And this issue of fathership has kind of run throughout the book of John. This issue of whose sons are we? If you remember way back in John chapter 1, um, Jesus is described as God's true son. In fact, we have it on a slide here this morning. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. That's that word monogenes, right? There's one born. This Jesus is, is the only son. It's not that he was actually like created. It's that he bears this position of privilege, that he was the firstborn of, of God, that he has all of the rights to inheritance, that he is uh, the person of privilege in this household, and that he's the son in the sense that he's the person of honor in the house, but he's also the sent one. He's the one that's most trustworthy. 
And so he's sent out by God as his only born. We see this again in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His monogenes, his only son. See, the truth this morning is that Jesus is the only son, that he alone bears this privilege before the Father, that his access to the Father is unique, that you and I cannot approach the throne of God outside of his monogenes, his only born son, Jesus. But there's another aspect of what John has been showing us, that that not only is Jesus God's only son, that you and I don't have the spiritual progeny that we think we do. Excuse me, not the progeny, but the spiritual fatherhood that we think we do. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having this debate with these Jews, and the issue of who their father was comes up. And the Jews maintain that Abraham was their father in John chapter 8, verse 39. Of course, this is kind of, you know, biologically true. All of them could map out their family tree and say, yeah, Abraham is my great, 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 great grandfather. But Jesus is highlighting something different. It's not that, that what, who their progeny was or, or what their family line was. Jesus is highlighting that their actions showed that they were someone different. See, Jesus maintains that their father is the devil. Look at John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice the two things that Jesus highlights about Satan that define him. He's a murderer. What are the Jews at this point trying to do? They're seeking ways to kill Jesus. And in the very next verse, in 845, he highlights that they reject the truth. They embrace lies. They have their father, the devil, who spins lies as part of his nature. Have you ever had that place in life where you meet someone and you can look at them and you can tell immediately that they look like someone else in their family? Like you see them and they're immediately a Kuntz or a Bradshaw or whatever, right? They have the the Kuntz nose or the Spirito eyes or the Bradshaw stupidity or whatever. See, when we see sin, we show our true spiritual birth line. When we do and accomplish sinful things, it shows that we are born from our natural father, the devil. We're rebellious as he is rebellious. We're sinful as he is sinful. But John's not done with this issue of our spiritual fatherhood. Here in John 16, he's saying, someday you're going to pray to him like he's your father. You have access to to the father through my resurrection. But I want to highlight something that happens after Jesus' resurrection. Look at John chapter 20, verse 17. This is... Mary Magdalene has been wandering around the garden looking for Jesus. She's so confused about what happened has happened to Jesus' body. She's wandering around. She confuses Jesus with the gardener. And finally, Jesus says this to her. He says, do not cling to me. She finally recognizes who he is and hugs him. And Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascended to what? My Father and your Father. To my God and your God. You see how this theme has been brought full all the way around? 
Jesus, the only Son, has come on behalf of our rebelliousness. He's taken up our cause as we were uh, naturally the children of our father, the devil, and he now has redeemed us and brought us back. See, this theme of God's sons runs through the gospel like a thread, the gospel of John like a thread. For us to approach God as father is an undeserved grace. And as we're united by faith with Christ, we have this undeserved, unfettered access before the throne. As we are united to Christ, the true vine, as we are branches kind of grafted into him, as we are in him and he is in us, like John 15 verse 4 says, we also bear the privilege of sonship because Jesus took our rebellion to the cross. When we place our faith in Jesus, our spiritual lineage is cut off and we are adopted sons into Jesus' own family. We're welcomed into the household of God because of the sacrificial death of Jesus. See, that's the good news of the gospel is that I was a rebellious child of Satan and God stripped off my lineage and now has made me righteous in Christ so that I bear the privilege of sonship. Jesus bore our sin so that we can be sons of God in Christ. So that we can say with integrity to our prayers, we can start our prayers with integrity with the words, Our Father who art in heaven. See, this is grace from God, isn't it? That you and I are privileged to come before the throne of grace with confidence based upon the blood of Jesus. You might step away and say, Jason, why does this matter? This matters because it gives us options as Christians to come and to pray to a righteous and holy God that we didn't have access to before. So Christian, it's your responsibility and my responsibility to pray like it's an otherworldly privilege, like it's something that wasn't deserved and earned by us. I wonder sometimes if, if we pray in such a way that it just becomes kind of monotonous duty. You ever feel like that? Maybe you're one who keeps a prayer journal and you write down all of the requests from your community group and, and coworkers and friends and relatives and you're, you're writing all these things down and, and you go about your prayer life in this kind of monotonous, duty-formed sense of ho-humness. I don't know. That's, my, my language is failing me this morning. We go about prayer as if it were duty and not delight. See, I know this morning that privilege has a negative connotation, doesn't it? Privilege, as we hear it said, is something undeserved, as if that's a bad thing. You know, it's reminded this morning that some of the most beautiful things in life are undeserved. I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my kids. I don't deserve this church. And I say that in a good way. Like, you can say that in a negative way. I don't deserve my wife. That's a positive thing. I don't deserve the privilege of prayer. Prayer is access that I didn't have clearance for. Prayer is the means for the meager. Prayer is gift. Prayer is grace from God.
we might wonder how we go about this process, right? How do we, how do, we do this in a way that's filled with life, that senses its privilege? I don't know. I mean, honestly, if I were honest with you, I think our sinful hearts go through seasons where we find privileged prayer to be kind of mundane and dry. There are times where you're going to sit down and and decide to pray, and it will be uh, kind of unemotional. It'll be duty rather than delight. Let's take a moment just to kind of understand the basics of prayer. When do I pray? Let's talk about the when, the where, the how, the what. When do I pray? First Thessalonians says that we should pray without ceasing. That is this kind of life that, that is always in the presence of God, that is always thinking about what it is that, that God wants from us, that always senses the presence of God and his interaction with my daily habits and what's going on in my life. A few months ago, uh, my son Sam and I went to a, a Brown's practice. And you might think that the presence of God might not be in Cleveland, which might be true. I don't know. That's not true. But we were there, and I stayed too long. You could see the clouds rolling in. There was going to be a thunderstorm. And I stayed too long. And we're sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, we'll be fine. It'll be all right. Well, we kind of finally, they, they shut down the practice because there's a, a lightning storm coming in. And Sam and I start going to our car. Well, we've parked like 30,000 miles away or something. So we're walking and we're walking and finally it starts storming. And I'm not saying like, you know, a little storm, a little rain. I'm saying we heard a lightning bolt land about a hundred yards away from us. And I've never been so scared for my life at at any moment. And I'm trying to keep it together so Sam doesn't freak out. Oh, it's going to be fine. Everything's good. We're good. But we're running for our lives. And in that moment, I don't know what possessed me to do this. But I said out loud, and there's hundreds of people around, said, God, keep us safe. Like, I am freaking out at this point. And it slips out my mind, this, this little prayer, God, help us. Unceasing prayer in all of life's moments. It's funny when you're thinking you're about to die. <laughs> you're thinking this might be the end. The things that come to your mind. So when do I pray? I pray all the time. I pray without ceasing. We, we are called to do that. We're called to live in this all-of-life reality that we're inviting God into and saying, God, this is your reality too, and I want to recognize that you rule over this place and this time. I want to invite uh, my sense that you are in charge of all this. Where do I pray? I pray anywhere, right? We saw this in John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking with this woman at the well, and she's saying, where do I pray? Do I pray on this mountain here in Samaria, or do I pray on the mountain that is in Jerusalem where you guys pray? How do I pray, Jesus? And Jesus saying, the time's coming when neither here nor there you're going to pray, but those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. They'll worship wherever they are. You and I, we can worship in the BMV or Cleveland for that matter. I mean, anywhere, right? Why? How do I pray? (laughs) Well, how? You pray through the the gracious intervention of Jesus, that Jesus has paved this way before the Father, that you and I kind of mark out and follow the path of Jesus as he returned to his Father. We also have this same access. And so that, that, that means is that you and I pray with humility. We didn't get there on our own standing. We didn't get there because we deserved to be before God in prayer, that God has extended grace to us and invited us into his presence. 
We pray not just with humility, we pray with sincerity. Not just blind blanket prayers. We sincerely ask God to intervene in these circumstances that we cannot control. We pray with humility. We pray with sincerity. We pray with intensity. We recognize, God, I need you. I need your presence here in this instance. Lord, we need you with these missionaries. We need you here in Troy, Ohio. We need you to shape and form our kids. We need you to do all of these things. What do I pray? I just advocate you pray for anything that concerns you. Isn't that the idea of Philippians 4? Be anxious in nothing, but with thanksgiving, everything with prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. Let's pray with humility, sincerity, intensity. Let's pray all things that concern us. Can I advocate for just one discipline that I think is so helpful? To pray the Scriptures. To pray the Scriptures back to God. You know, one of the greatest places to start is in the Pauls of, or the prayers of Paul. The Pauls of prayers, my goodness. The prayers of Paul are amazing prayers that we can pray for other people that we love deeply. A place to start is Philippians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. We can pray that for our kids. We can say, Lord, allow them to grow in love and knowledge and discernment so that they can approve what's excellent and so they can be filled with the fruit of righteousness for the day of your coming. It's a great format for us to pray. Otherwise, we might be beholden to all of our selfish inclinations. This morning, I, I hope that we might become people of rich, deep prayer. And I know, as Jesus says this, that he, he invites us to this sense of joyfulness in prayer. I know that we cannot have true joy without a life of prayer and dependence. Jesus links these two things together for us so that if I'm saying I'm not as joyful as I think I I could be, maybe the first place we need to look is, are we prayerful? Have we taken our requests with confidence before the throne of grace? It's a grace of God that we have access before God's throne. And I don't want to take that lightly. I want to be a body, a pastor, a Christian who takes all of these concerns before our Heavenly Father. I wonder if we might do that now. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would make us a people who bring our concerns to you. Train our hearts and our minds to trust you, to delight in you, to bring our deepest concerns to you. Teach us to pray for our kids. Teach us to pray for our jobs, for our coworkers, for our church, so that we might sense your joy in us as we see you answer those things. And teach us to pray with, 
with intensity, to pray with humility, to pray with sincerity so that you might be honored and glorified in us. Teach us to love like you love, to hate what you hate, and teach us to pray those things before your throne. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.